Welcome to You Owe Me an Apology, the podcast, slash the newsletter, slash etc. You already know what time it is. I'm about to go off. Thank you for being here. I also want to say thank you for being willing to listen to a single person podcast. I, I do realize that that is a big ask, you know, um, pretty much it's me, it's Emma Chamberlain, you know, sort of only the most audacious bitches are doing that. And so I just want to thank you for your support. Okay, so today there's lots on my mind. There's lots of things I want to talk about. The main ones are number one, Paramore. Number two, Treegate. And number three, Picks or It Didn't Happen Culture. So as you can see from the title of this podcast episode, what I learned about calling out a toxic YouTuber, I have been reflecting on my experience of having called out a toxic YouTuber. So if you're just joining us, a couple weeks back, I made a post um, on the newsletter page about an experience I had working for a particular person who also happens to be a YouTuber um, who has, you know, is facing a lot of very serious allegations right now. And so I talked about my post last week. I'm not going to be continuing to cover the allegations about her just because, uh, you know, she got to deal with that. (laughs) But I do want to talk about what I experienced just being a person who not only went through this years ago, but then chose to write about it and then had that essay go insanely viral and just everything that comes with that. Um, So last week I wrote about, you know, just the notion that I was seeing of people being like, you're going to destroy your reputation and talked about my thoughts about that. So if you haven't read that yet, I would definitely encourage you to check it out. And so, yeah, this week I just kind of want to focus on some other things that I've learned and have observed and uh, taken in uh, having had this experience. So before I get into it, I just want to say I received a lot of people really angry on my behalf and a lot of people who really felt for me and for that um, situation that I had experienced at work um, years ago. And that was very surprising to me, actually, just because... Unfortunately, because of my industry, uh, and I think also because of my identities being like a, you know, woman and dark skinned black person and a fat person too, um, and just everything that comes along with that, I think some of the things that I've experienced in my career, I've really just been like, oh, it's par for the course. Like when I was going through that experience, I definitely was irritated and I was definitely like talking to everybody I knew about how irritated I was, but I think having other people read it and hearing their responses was a really nice opportunity for me to just realize like, oh, that was actually like such a terrible experience. (laughs) Like basically it just gave me an opportunity, I think, to revisit that with uh, new eyes and especially as somebody who's a lot older and wiser and to be able to say like, yeah, it was so awful that that happened and I couldn't believe that um, that has happened to lots of people, not just me. And I want to do everything I can to make sure that this culture is not like acceptable going forward. Um, but I don't think that I had really had actual like empathy, I think for the younger version of me that had just moved to LA and immediately was dealing with this extremely chaotic, uh, work environment with like no backup and no help. And so I, I just, that's something that I learned was just that people care and that, uh, 
a lot of people can feel for me and that I, I knew that a lot of people had had experiences that were similar, but the number of people that I did hear from was really sad. Like, I don't know why we have to put up with this bullshit. <laughs> like, honestly, it's really upsetting that it is that common, but also did make me feel better. A lot of other people have had that and that. There was part of me that, you know, before I decided to make a post, I was like, if I write all this down, are there going to be people who are like, you're being dramatic, like she didn't hit you. So you're fine. Like, I don't know why you're being dramatic about it. There was part of me that was like, you know, I've worked with lots of honestly abusive people. This person is not even, I would say the most abusive person I've had to work with. And so there was part of me that kind of was like, maybe this isn't a big deal. But once I wrote it all out, I was like, oh no, <laughs> this was unacceptable. And I'm clicking post and never looking back. Another thing that I was observing <laughs> was you know I was getting a lot of comments that were basically along the lines of pics or it didn't happen and if you've never used the phrase pics or it didn't happen I definitely have it just is what it sounds like it's like something happened that is wild and I've used it when my friends are like oh I just saw Lance Bass at uh Home Goods and you would say pics or it didn't happen like send me a picture I need to see it not that I don't actually believe you but um I would like to obviously see a photograph of that and so I found that um some of the responses and like I said the majority of the responses were not this and were very like thoughtful and understanding and empathetic um but some of the responses were sort of pics or it didn't happen and I, I took some screenshots of to me the most eye-opening um responses that that I saw before I unplugged and so there's one that says it's easy to believe these accusations because this youtuber is already under hot water which is deserved but without any physical proof any word of mouth can be easily fabricated this that comment it says it has 190,000 views uh, another person, which honestly, this is an Ariana Grande stan account, so definitely grain of salt. It says, I only believe things with receipts. And I saw a lot of things along those lines of like demanding receipts. Number one, I'm grateful to be having this experience at this age. I'm 30 um, versus when this happened when I was 22, because I think that just being older, honestly, and wiser, having experienced a lot of things in my life gives me a really healthy perspective that I'm grateful for. But seeing those comments made me kind of concerned because I realized that there is a generation of people under me, Gen Z, who have had a lot of their formative years affected by COVID and realizing that like being, you know, 18, 19, 20, those were such big years for me to sort of learn about like, okay, how does the world actually work? And just thinking about the fact that for a lot of people, those years were the years where they were in quarantine, where they could not be out in the world. They could not be having those experiences that form how you're going to move through the world. They've, they've been online. And so I realized like, oh my God, there is a huge part of the population that is so used to like when someone's being called out, you don't believe it until you see a screenshot. And once you see the screenshot, then you can decide if you believe it or not, but picks or it didn't happen. And I realized like, oh my God, <laughs> there are people who have by sort of uh, default gained a really victim blaming mindset because they don't understand that there will be times in life where things happen to you and there are no pictures. And so keep in mind, like, 
this is not exactly applicable to this situation because this was my job. Like you obviously can see on IMDb that I had this job. I, you know, every single time something happened, I texted my friends. So like I do have receipts, but at the same time, it shouldn't be about the person who is speaking about their experience defending themselves because I'm not on trial. Like this woman is on trial and in the court of public opinion, but also I'm sure at some point in actual court. And so she has to defend herself. But even if, I didn't have the quote unquote receipts, it would still be a really inappropriate thing to say because there are going to be times in your life when, God forbid, something terrible happens to you and you can't go on Instagram live and be like, look, look at this bitch. She just said the N word in front of me. Like, you can't, you, you can't do that at work. <laughs> and I realized that I think that there genuinely are younger people out there who don't understand that. And so, you know, after I did the original post, I got a lot of um, new followers. So shout out to y'all. And I do know that maybe some of those new followers are hate follows. And to that I say, okay, they're obsessed with me. <laughs> I'm a celebrity. <laughs> but if you did hate follow me, maybe while you're here, you might listen to what I have to say about this, which is just... I really, really, really encourage you to be careful about the things that you're saying about people online. Because like I said, I'm a grown up and I thank God for that every single day that I've been through enough in my life to be able to not take other people's uh, lack of insight personally. But I think, you know, if you're posting something like, I would never believe something without a receipt, like I will not ever believe anything people are saying unless I see a screenshot you know, you post that maybe your friend who, God forbid, has been through a sexual assault and does not have a screenshot sees that and thinks, okay, now I know I can never trust this person. I can never confide in this person because they've just demonstrated that that's how they feel. And I also noticed that a lot of these like responses and quote tweets and stuff that I was seeing were from black women for like from young black women. And um, saying, like, I don't get why, you know, I, I also got a lot of responses of why did this person, quote, sit on this information for years? And like, if you really had a problem, you should have said something at the time. Um, there was this one thread where when um, I got pop craved, which was one of the scariest things that's ever happened to me, <laughs> that pop craved this um, Twitter site that posts like about trending topics and popular culture and stuff. They found out about the newsletter post and reposted it. That's what made it really go um, insanely viral. And this young woman quote tweeted it and she said it's and obviously she didn't read the whole essay, but whatever. She said, it's not lost on me how people have sat on this information for years and are just now telling us. And that has six million views. <laughs> so um, and lots of quote tweets with people totally agreeing with her. That was a young black woman. I clicked on her page and she's 20 years old. So. To that I say, you're a black woman, which means I do not wish an experience like this on you or anyone, but because of the society that we live in, the chances of something like that happening to you are pretty high, and I don't want you to have to learn the hard way what it feels like to be in a position where, you know, the job that I had, I had no power, I had no control of what was going on, I had no backup. I had no other options. Like I was lucky to even get that job and I def desperately relied on it financially, but also just career wise. 
I was not in a position to quote like have information and then like sit on it and then expose like that's not something that was uh even on my mind that wasn't an option for me and um for a young black woman to think that it's that simple I just I really encourage you to kind of think about power dynamics think about what it might actually physically look like to walk into a workplace and it's all you know non-black people one black person they're in the service position they're the only one in a service position and think about what what that actually would be to quote unquote expose like you can't obviously do that but so I yeah I saw a lot of young black women saying that and I just thought oh my god like y'all don't know yet and you know I I have empathy for them because of course, it sounds so absurd. Like if you're in a workplace and somebody is clearly being a white supremacist, you would think that it would be so obvious to just somebody call them out. But the reality is nobody did. Like people are saying online, you know, why did I sit on this information? My question is, why didn't anyone else in the writer's room do anything? I wasn't there alone. Like the day that she said that, like get all the Asian shit out of the the Vietnamese grocery store, there were tons of people in that room. Nobody said anything like, you know, I had bosses who clearly knew that I was in this environment where I'm the only uh, black person. And this, this woman says stuff that is unacceptable and it's not being brought up. And I actually think that, you know, me going through this and then sharing it can be a learning experience for other people of let's really examine why is it so much easier for you to demand the, most marginalized person in the room to put everything on the line because they have observed this. Why is it so much easier to do that than to think like, wait, it's a writer's room. There's other people there. Why didn't any of the other people say anything? Even now, after I've posted that and it's gone everywhere, like I haven't heard from anyone else I worked with. And that is not surprising to me, but maybe it's surprising to you that this is a, this is how like black people are treated at work and especially black women and I actually think you know seeing tweets like that and then seeing people kind of in the comments trying to educate each other and like I saw one reply where people are like wait oh actually I just read the whole thing never mind like now I see that it was actually more complicated uh that I think that's really incredible and I think I would much rather somebody uh learn from my experience and think okay, if I'm going to the workplace, especially if I'm going into like a predominantly white industry, uh, now I kind of know what to expect. Like, God forbid, I hope this doesn't happen to me. But if it does, I can prepare myself because I certainly was not prepared. Like I thought what was the worst was going to happen was like, I was going to have to make a lot of Starbucks runs. (laughs) Like I was like, okay. I was like, let me get really comfortable shoes because I'm going to be going back and forth to Starbucks. And then I get there day one and like, she is saying the N word. (laughs) Like absolutely so um that is something that I learned is that I just think we are really like as millennials and elder millennials we're really gonna need to have some patience and some empathy as some Gen Z people and I'm not generalizing it's not all Gen Z people I saw plenty of Gen Z people who were properly educated about stuff like this but we actually are going to need to have a little bit of empathy and patience for the members of that generation who literally do not know Because they're saying, like, why didn't she say something earlier? And I think they genuinely are asking, like, why didn't she? Like, I don't understand. And so I do get that. And I hope that hopefully they can learn from what I went through um, and that they can have a different perspective so that they're not saying things online that later they might seriously regret.
And the last thing I want to talk about that I learned from this is that um, sometimes when you go viral, a lot of people are Googling you, trying to figure out like who this person is, trying to just either get information or trying to like honestly find ways to like discredit me and then get upset because turns out I absolutely did work on this show and absolutely everything I said was the God's honest truth. But I think because I was being Googled a lot, um, I started getting Google alerts of my name being mentioned on different like websites and sometimes it'll be these websites that'll pop up that's essentially like the net worth websites or just like trying to get information about like quote-unquote celebrities which I think is so funny because like y'all <laughs> not a celebrity in any stretch of the imagination but so I got one that I thought was so funny that I'm gonna read you some some highlights so it's this website called Dre Share and I looked it up and it says it's a celebrity news portal based out of India and so, yeah, what they do is just if people are in the news, they'll write a quick write-up of uh, who this person is and try to give some context. But unfortunately, like, a lot of it was wrong in a really hilarious way <laughs> where it's like, where did you get that? Okay, so I'm going to read you some of my favorite things in uh, this website and then I will uh, put a link to it in the show notes. So some information is correct, like they get my name right and like my job, stuff like that. The first thing that I caught that was incorrect is it says April is also a writer for the Netflix comedy series Space Force starring Steve Carell and John Malkovich. I am not. <laughs> I definitely have heard of the Space Force show, but unfortunately I did not work on that. No hate to them, but I do love that that is uh, absolutely stated as fact. The next thing that popped out was it said I'm born on April 4th, 1991. Uh, please do not age me, baby. 93, April 17th. Don't try me. Try someone else. Next, graduated from Northwestern 2013. Uh-uh, 2015. Who was telling them that I'm, like, older than I am? What What is this conspiracy? I can't take it. <laughs> okay. Next, it says that um, April worked as a script coordinator for the ABC drama series Scandal, created by Shonda Rhimes. <laughs> like, first, when I saw this website, I was like, oh, it's got to be, like, computer-generated, like an AI or something. But then I clicked around, and it's like, no, somebody genuinely just thought that this was real? <laughs> Why? Okay, next things. Um, April has written for other shows such as The Good Place and Dear White People. Incorrect, but I do love Good Place down, so definitely stream. Um, it says that one of her sisters is a lawyer and the other is a teacher. <laughs> no. Okay, here's the section that absolutely tore me apart to my core. <clears throat> the section says, Boyfriend and Relationships. There is no proper information available about April's boyfriend and relationship. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm single. So what? They literally drag the shit out of me. There's a rundown where it says, uh, it's like a list of just quote unquote facts about me. And it says husband, none. Marital status, unmarried. Relationship, not known. Boyfriend, will update. Kids, none. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Okay, drag me. Yeah, I'm single. And by the way, my DMs are open, so like, don't even worry about it. I'm working on it. Next thing, um, net worth estimated to be $500,000. Uh, listen up and listen well. If I had $500,000, you would not be able to trace my whereabouts. I would be living on the beach in a mansion in Monrovia, Liberia. Uh, there would be security outside. I would be in there streaming Gossip Girl. Um, I would be 
dating a guy who everyone refers to as T-boy. He would have a six pack and we would sort of have a beautiful, peaceful life. That's what I would be doing instead of uh, sweating on the picket line. And speaking of the picket line, this week I demand an apology from, say it with me, the AMPTP. So if you haven't heard, the writers guild of america which i am a proud member of for the past five or six years um we have been on strike since may and we have been on strike because we have a new contract that has been in the process of being negotiated for months now with basically all the people who are involved in the production of television and every three years we make a contract that will dictate the terms of how we will work for them and we sign it we keep it going we work we make tv for three years we do it again this year we're on strike because uh those people have lost their minds So there are a lot of great resources that break down basically the way that our basic agreements work, the way that negotiations went this year, because it can be kind of complicated. So I'll give you just a brief breakdown of the main things on the table uh, this year. So one of the biggest points of contention is residuals, and that is a big deal uh, to someone like me. A writer who would just sort of love to be able to pay off her student loans. Shout out Northwestern, go cats. <laughs> I am in a lot of debt. So basically, um, residuals, how it worked previously, think like before streaming, let's say that you worked on Friends. Friends is a great example. So it came on on NBC and then there would be reruns. It would air again. And then let's say it airs in another country. Let's say, you know, sometimes a different network or like a cable network will pick it up and they run reruns all the time. And that still is the case to this day. So when they run those reruns, the actors and like the writers, people who were involved and had it in their contract to get residuals are getting paid based off of those reruns. And they make a lot of money from it. Um, If you, you know, work in television and film, you will come across people who worked on Friends specifically. And basically now they all just sort of have passion projects, but they don't need to work. They are wealthy wealthy individuals depending on how long they worked on the show and how many episodes and everything um because of streaming that is no longer the case so the way that a rerun would be treated in terms of compensation and the way that a view on something like netflix would be treated are dramatically different and the reason for that difference uh is just straight up corporate greed to be honest and also because with traditional television back in the day ratings think about like getting the nielsen numbers nielsen families everything like that the amount of people who were watching a show was never a secret we always knew exactly who those people were and everybody who was associated with that show would be paid accordingly because of streaming you have no idea how many people have seen your show you can't tell we don't know the numbers they won't tell us the numbers you really can only tell from just people coming up to you and being like, oh, I've seen that. And so sometimes I work on a show and I can tell like, oh, maybe it's not that popular. Sometimes I work on a show and I can tell, oh, a lot of people have seen this. But either way, I'm being paid exactly the same. And so a big issue is we need to change the way that residuals are calculated. And that means we need some transparency. We need to figure out how many people are actually watching our shows. And um, the companies will not tell us. And uh, that is a huge issue. The other issue is AI, which lots of people smarter than me have talked about, but I will put some um, links in the show notes about the exact concerns about AI. 
which is basically just the nightmare scenario is, you know, somebody like Warner Brothers says, okay, so we got our AI bot to write a script about a coming of age story. Can you edit it to make it a little bit more human? And then we'll pay you like a punch up fee. But ultimately it is the robots movie. And so, you know, it is not your film and you're not going to get credited and you're certainly not going to get paid, but definitely thank you so much for the punch up. We're not doing that. I refuse to rewrite something that was spit out by chat GBT, which is actually something that they're very much uh, wanting to do, which is, you know, insane. So that is an extremely watered down in general summary of the things that are on the table that we were not able to reach an agreement about. Now, what I truly demand an apology for is how personal this fight has gotten. So earlier I mentioned something called Treegate. Let's get into Treegate. What happened with Treegate is there is a picketing location at Universal, which is where I worked right up until the strike and where the trees are, uh, or or where the trees were, is uh, right underneath where my office was, which I think is really freaking cool. But so basically what happened is there's a picketing location at Universal. Um, It's really hot right now. And also Universal's in the Valley, which is known for being um, even hotter than uh, the more Southern part of LA. And so there were these big trees that uh, were right where picketers were walking. So at least they would get a little bit of shade while they were, you know, walking in circles for hours trying to get these people's attention. (laughs) So what happened was um, this happened over a weekend on Monday. Some writers returned to their picketing location and saw that these trees had been absolutely chopped down to the stump. Now, there are two, you know, lines of thought here. You could say... Maybe it was the city of Burbank. Maybe it was just time for those trees to get trimmed. You know, maybe nothing nefarious is happening here. Or you could be living on planet Earth and understand that this is absolutely a direct attack on the writers as a basically a huge fuck you to say, okay, you can keep picketing because I guess that's your constitutional right or whatever the fuck, but we're going to remove the shade from the trees so that everyone gets sun poisoning. And then I guess we're all um, too sick in, in the hospital to be able to uh, stand up for our absolute right to protest. Uh, so what happened was, you know, somebody tweeted about this, started going viral, Uh, City of Burbank said, we'll look into it. Universal puts out a statement and says, yes, we did trim it, but we always trim the trees this time of year because we're getting ready for the windy season coming up. City of Burbank comes back. uh, Those are City of Burbank trees. They're not Universal trees. And also we don't prune them this type of year because it's summer and also there's no permit. So they literally did just go out, chop the trees down just as a fuck you. And, um then tried to lie and say that it's something that they do regularly. And then somebody found like the Google earth photos from, of those trees from the past three summers and they've never been cut like that. So it is literally just them taking a dig at us. And during the the strike so far, there've been plenty of things like that that have happened. The first day of the strike, when I was at Amazon picketing, they were literally having a party like on the other side of the fence and we were chanting and like doing our you know strike chants and stuff and I literally heard one of them tell the DJ to turn the music louder to try to drown us out there's also been um the very famous Bob Iger clip that I'll put here we managed as an industry to negotiate a very good deal with the directors guild that reflects the value that the directors contribute to this great business 
we wanted to do the same thing with the writers and we'd like to do the same thing with the actors. There's a level of expectation that they have that is just not realistic. And they are adding to a set of challenges that this business is already facing that is, quite frankly, very disruptive. So they're not being realistic? Uh, no, they're not. I cannot believe that it has gotten this personal for something that is ultimately a business dispute. This is about business. At least that's what I thought it was. But having experiences for this many months, I'm now starting to see that this is not about business at all. This is about like personal contempt for writers. And it's been very interesting because as the actors have joined us, there's a clear sentiment that I've been able to sniff out from many of the studio heads being like, well, we never wanted to piss off the actors like, oh, actors, of course, you know, we thought you'd be level headed, but fuck the writers. Obviously, like the writers are just these dramatic, self-important people who like think we need them to make art. Here's the thing. I don't think that writers are more important than any other part of the creative process. But I do, as somebody who's been doing this for years now, recognize that this art that I'm a part of, this is a team sport. You can't do this by yourself. And to cut off a huge part of this industry and just to say fuck you and to do any little digs that they can find uh, to try to get back at us for not being comfortable accepting pennies, uh, I can't wrap my mind around it. I can't wrap my mind around how we're supposed to go back to work for these companies like Universal that just was responsible for Treegate. I've worked for Universal for years now, consistently. Every dollar that I ask for above the absolute legal minimum that they can pay us is a fight. It's an absolute fight. You know, going into this, there's rich white men at the top who are the suits, who have a bottom line, and that's all they care about. And then there's the workers who are just trying our best. And there's some of us workers who have been able to be very successful and uh, financially stable plus. And then there's some of us who have, you know, worked and, and unfortunately the time of my career has really been at the exact time that all of this sort of the streamers and the, the foundation that we had has really fallen apart. And those are the facts. Those are things that I understand, but I, I can't come to terms with the emotional side of it. I can't come to terms with their insistence on any little part of the process that they can step on us. They want to step on us. I can't get over the categorization of, of choosing to call us unrealistic and being unreasonable and being like not level-headed individuals and you know SAG put out their proposals the other day and then AMPTP put out you know their understanding of the proposals and there's something in there like you know the performers just don't understand that they want to take part in the profit but they don't want to bear any of the risk of production and I can't believe that they would say that when people die on set all the time we bear every inch of the risk. We literally put our names on projects that could be dragged in the press and affect our careers for the rest of our lives. We do free work in the hopes that one day it will pay off. And a lot of times it freaking doesn't. We deal with abusive environments like I wrote about a couple of weeks ago, like people endure all the time, like everybody was talking about with me too. They sit in conference rooms in Century City and genuinely do believe with their full chest that they are this industry. And here's the thing, like I know I'm never getting an apology for their behavior. I know none of the other actors and writers who are on strike and the many crew people who have been supporting us who have been treated like shit by these 
individuals that make up the AMPTP, I know we're never getting our apology. I'm not holding my breath. I'm not ignorant to that. But what I don't know how to do is compartmentalize their behavior and the after. Meaning like, okay, so after all of this, after we duke it out for God knows how long, however long they feel that they uh, believe that they have a shot of us letting this go, which they have zero shot, we're never letting it go. But, you know, at some point, we will have a contract on the table, we'll agree to it, we'll sign it, we'll get back to work. How do I drive back to Universal, drive back to those trees cut down, drive back to my office, go back on set, knowing that the people at the very top of this industry do not give a fuck whether I live or die? Like, I'm sure if you're online and, you know, if you're paying attention to the strike, you heard about a few weeks ago, an anonymous studio person said basically that the strategy for the AMPTP is to starve us out and to drag this on until writers are losing their homes and their their apartments and basically everything until we're forced to accept whatever they throw at us. That is their strategy and that is their belief. So knowing that, that there's people who are a part of this uh, alliance, quote unquote, who believe that about me, how um do I go back to work? <laughs> How do I continue to work directly for the benefit of corporations who not only don't believe in my value, but have a personal vendetta against me for wanting more for myself? And I realized that basically like that's where we are at a, as a country right now is the reason why people are talking about a general strike is that that's the dynamic with everyone. Every single person who if you have a boss of any kind, you realize, wait a minute, we're in the middle of a recession where we're at a point where a week's worth of groceries cost $400. My boss doesn't give a fuck about cost of living, doesn't give a fuck about inflation, wants to squeeze me for everything I'm worth. How do we go back to work? after this. I don't know how to do it and I feel insane. <laughs> like I feel like I want to uh, try to find another scenario where I get to be creative without feeling fully taken advantage of and I can't think of one. Like I was like okay well I've always wanted to write YA books maybe I'll be an author. Learn about the publishing industry for one second. It's bad too. Okay maybe you know I've always thought about teaching. I could be like a screenwriting teacher or an English teacher. Okay, teachers, literally, they're on strike too. We're all on strike. And I just don't understand how to process that and process that we are living in this world where we literally are, it's not in our heads. We're being actively taken advantage of it every second. And how um, just insidious that is. Because it's about profit, obviously. But also, like, it's not lost on me that if these studios want us to continue to work for pennies, it will get to a point where the only people who can afford to do this job are the people who are already independently wealthy from their families. So that means that if things don't change, there will be no space in the industry for people like me, for black people who just making it, uh, as I've written about before, as an assistant, and then being able to move up the ranks and be a writer and now being an upper, le upper level writer. Like I already had to endure so much and overcome so much just to be able to make it here. 
And so to be able to make it and then be told, well, we're trying to extinguish the possibility of there being any more Aprils. I don't know how to take that any other way except for extremely personally and to see it for what it is, which is like the ultimate act of white supremacy. And just to be like so mad, I can't even think straight. So if anyone has any tips <laughs> for how to deal with sort of the end of capitalism and just sort of realizing that uh, not only is there a target on my back in a, you know, financial sense, but in a pure existence sense, they literally do want me dead. That's a fact. So any tips on sort of dealing with uh an existential crisis brought on by a sort of capitalistic fueled rage, I would greatly appreciate. <laughs> and in the meantime, you know, I am finding a lot of joy in the amount of people that have been supporting us. It means so much to me. Um, even just hearing from people that I know who are seeing it on the news and being like, what can I help? There are lots of resources. I'll put some in the show notes if you're interested. And of course, um, I donate 50% of the proceeds from this venture, You Owe Me an Apology, to the Entertainment Community Fund, which is available for the people in this industry who have been affected by the greedy little monsters who um, control every single cent that uh, circulates in this industry. And I'll focus on that. I'll focus on solidarity and the fact that we have each other's back. And I will continue to actively pray on the downfall of the AMPTP. Um, so, you know, to the AMPTP, I just want to let you know, I'm going to tell my grandma about you. We're going to be praying for your downfall. So watch the fuck out. All right. Felt extremely good to get that off my chest. <laughs> and now we're going to move on to shout outs. So the first thing I'm shouting out is Paramore. Uh, the most iconic rock band on the face of the earth. Do not at me. So this week, I got to go to their concert with my beloved friend, Mickey. Shout out, Mickey. Huge supporter of the newsletter and also just one of my favorite people on this planet. Um, we got to go to the show and it was an out-of-body experience. And I'm not joking. Um, Paramore is having a sort of cultural moment right now where I think a lot of people are realizing that they have a huge black fan base. I think that's because Haley Williams, number one, is the main singer and she is one of the most incredible vocalists of her entire generation. That's not debatable. And something that I'm proud of as a black person is that we see a vocalist, we stand, that's it. We can't ignore talent. That's not something that was is within our ability and we're not interested in that. She's talented. She goes off. She's it. Like, I'm sorry. That's just what it is. And so, you know, we stand for that reason. We also stand because the band is very outspoken about issues that affect us. And so uh, politically, it just makes sense. Talent-wise, it just makes sense. Um, so I'm a Paramore stan and have been since the first time that I heard them. They played Pressure on Laguna Beach <laughs> back in the day and um it was over for me I was like what 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 is that what is that and I googled the lyrics I think I was on azlyrics.com um so just definitely shout out to that my favorite Paramore song I think is gonna go ahead and be Decode from the Twilight soundtrack if you know you know
And my second favorite after that is All I Wanted. So for the people who are not, you know, on Paramore fan pages, <laughs> um, All I Wanted is known for there's this crazy, crazy high note um, halfway through it. And for a long time, they weren't performing it live just because, I mean, literally to be able to do that to your voice night after night is like, it would be really hard on the voice. So I don't think anyone was too upset when they weren't performing it for years. And so every once in a while, they'll do it and Haley will do the high note. And it's like, you, it's just all of the cells in your body sort of stand still for a moment. and You just, you take it in. But so we were at the concert. She had been singing for two hours. I was like living, having so much fun. I hear the first couple notes of all I wanted and I turn to my friend and I go, no, this isn't happening because if she was going to sing all I wanted, she certainly wouldn't do it after pushing her voice to the brink for hours. Now, would she? And yet she did. So she starts singing at this point. I'm fully out of my body. My body's standing in my seat. My soul has hit the ceiling. I'm completely blacking out. And then she says, ladies and gentlemen, welcome my friend, Billie Eilish. And I did this. So I'm shouting out Paramore, I'm shouting out, honestly, their entire discography. If you have an opportunity to see this tour and you are like a early 2000s secret punk rock fan, it's time to come out of the shadows. <laughs> Our time is now and uh, it's time to go to the concert and absolutely get your life. So I'm shouting them out. Um, and then my last shout out is I was looking for a comedy album to listen to and I came across this comedy special called Rape Victims Are Horny Too by Kelly Bachman and Dylan Adler, two hilarious comedians. And so I saw the name. I was like, oh, clicking. Obviously, like I love alternative comedy. Let's go. And what I ended up hearing was just some of the most ambitious audacious and just generally hilarious comedy that I've heard in so long where basically both of these comedians are survivors and they're just the premise I would say is we're rejecting any shame that comes with that like I think so much in society we really treat survivors as like oh well definitely keep that to yourself and work that out on your own time but I certainly don't want to hear about it and they're just like, literally, fuck that. This is our comedy. Like, this is a way that we've been able to process it. And it's it's not even bravery. It's beyond that. Like, they took something terrible and made it something beautiful that you can revisit over and over again. And that could honestly help you be able to better relate to people in your life who maybe have experienced some of this stuff. And like, what can be better than that? I just think that it's so incredible and so generous of them to have made this. And I'm telling everybody about it. So listen to that. Um, I do think that you will love it. I will put a link to it in the show notes. And I hope that they become the most successful comedians of all time. I do genuinely think they're geniuses. Um, okay, so that's it. Thank you so much for coming on this journey with me of the audio version of the newsletter this week. I hope that your neighbors aren't being too loud and that you are having an iced tea and maybe are postmating cream cheese wontons later, just as an idea. Thank you for being here and for listening. And I'll see you soon. Okay, bye.